Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Just before I came here this evening, a Facebook friend private messaged me, sent me a picture of a coffee cup that his wife had bought for him. Very seldom in life has a coffee cup ever summed up my life any better. So I stole that picture of his coffee cup and I put it on my wall on Facebook. And it reads, and I quote, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. That sums up 90% of my interactions on the internet. I can explain it to you, I just can't understand it for you. I don't know where you get these cups. Perhaps by saying it now on the internet, we'll find out. <laughs> I would line them up every morning and stare at them. So there we go. Perfect. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 29. In Job tonight, we're going to bump into another one of those biblical standards that are no longer part of our culture, part of our thinking. By the time we get to Elihu speaking tonight, Elihu is going to start out by saying, you know, I didn't say anything because you're all older than me. I didn't say anything because I'm the younger man, but now that I've heard you all, I need to respond, I need to reply to you. But he had respect for the other men simply because they were older. And the Bible says continually that you are to honor, to respect, to listen to the older folks, the white-haired folks, the no-haired folks, that you are supposed to pay attention to those people because, and follow me here if this gets too complicated, you're to listen to them because they know more than you. They, <laughs> they've, they've just been here longer than you have, and yet in our modern society, in our modern culture, 13-year-olds can get on a keyboard and get on social media and argue with someone like me who's of an advanced fuddy-duddy kind of age now. Okay, well, here you've got Elihu, who has listened to Job's three friends and listened to Job and has kept quiet even though he apparently has been there for the whole thing. We haven't heard anything about him, but apparently he's been there the whole time. And he kept his mouth quiet because he honored them as his elders. And that notion of honoring people as elders is missing from so much of our modern thinking and our modern society. So Elihu is then going to respond to Job and his three friends because what the three friends have said has stirred up Elihu's anger. And Job, as we're going to see tonight, starts to self-defend. He starts to self-justify. And that's enough to get Elihu speaking and saying, no, that, that can't be right. I can't let you get away with that. 
And so if we can get all the way to where I'd like to get tonight, we're also going to see one of the most genuinely astounding theological prophetic statements in the Old Testament, especially considering the fact that this is one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. It's really quite astounding what we're going to read from the mouth of Elihu, who's going to say that men in their corruptness, in their sinfulness, standing before an absolutely holy God, that the only thing that can change the judgment and the wrath that is coming their way is if they have a mediator. And he's going to refer to him. He's going to use the Hebrew word malaka. It's angel. It means messenger. Only if they have a messenger from God to stand between them and God and mediate for them, only then can they find justification with God. Well, that's everything we believe. That's the very essence of the gospel all the way back here in the book of Job. So that's where I'm hoping to get to tonight. We'll close on that point when we get there. But in order to get there, we've got to get through four chapters. So it's a lot of reading, but other than a couple of strange turns of a phrase, there's not a whole lot of interpreting to do. There's not a lot of explaining to do. It's uh, pretty understandable on its face. So I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. Okay? So, all right. So Job takes up his discourse again. He's going to say, once upon a time, I was really something. He's looking at himself now in the condition he's in, and he's going to say, once upon a time, I was an important guy. I was a well-known, wealthy, influential guy. And now, chapter 30, and now he's going to say, look at me. People who I wouldn't give the time of day treat me like a joke. So that's chapter 29 and 30. Here's how it goes. Job again took up his discourse and he said, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, in other words, watched over me to bless me, when his lamp shone over my head. In other words, the light of God was always over me. Everything I touched worked. And by his light, I walked through darkness as I was in the prime of my days. The very prime of life where we get that phrase is from right here in Job. Like I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent. In other words, my whole household was being constantly blessed by God. When the Almighty was yet with me and my children were around me and my steps were bathed in butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. No, we understand that turn of a phrase. He's saying, everywhere I went, it was all good. All the good things came to me. It seemed like I walked in butter, and it seems like streams of oil came my way out of the rocks. Everything I touched was positive. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me, and they hid themselves. In other words, they knew I was the older, wiser fellow, and so they would make sure that they had nothing to say. They would hide themselves, and the old men arose and stood. So wise old men honored me, and young men knew enough to just shut up and be quiet around me. The princes stopped talking, and they put their hands on their mouths. In other words, when I was in the gate, the place of judgment in the city even the princes, even the powerful people knew enough to just let me have my say. And they stopped talking. Verse 10, the voice of nobles was hushed. 
and their tongues stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of me, because I delivered the poor who would cry for help. This is part of the judgment in the gate that he would do. He would make sure that when the poor came to him and cried for help, that he would deliver them. And the orphan who had no helper, they could always count on Job. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. In other words, everybody liked me so much that even people on their deathbed would say a blessing over me. And even widows had to admit that though they were sad for the loss of their husband, I brought joy to them. I was just a genuine blessing to everybody around me. Verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. In other words, I was dressed up in righteousness. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I investigated the case which I did not know. In other words, as he sat in judgment in the gate, when people would bring things to him that he didn't know, he said, I would take the time to investigate. In other words, I was always fair. I was always righteous. I got to the bottom of things. Verse 17, and I broke the jaws of the wicked, and I snatched the prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. In other words, I'm going to have a length of days, and I'm going to live and die in the place that I have built for myself in my nest. Verse 19, my root is spread out to the waters. You know that's what a tree does. You only see the top of the tree. The roots will reach out underground to wherever the water source is. He says, that's what I was like. My root reached out, spread into the waters, and the dew lies all night on my branches. In other words, I was watered from top to bottom. I was taken care of. My glory is ever new with me. And my bow is renewed in my hand. In other words, I could defend myself. I had all this glory and honor. And to me, they listened and they waited. And they kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again. And my speech dropped on them. And they waited for me as they would wait for the rain. And they opened their mouth. As for the spring rain. In other words, people just took what I had to say as wisdom and nourishment. The same way that you might open your mouth and stick out your tongue to catch the rain when it's coming down. He said, that's how people hung on my words. That's how important I was when I sat in the gate. I smiled on them when they did not believe. Interesting phrase. I smiled on them when they did not believe. And the light of my face. They did not cast down. I chose a way for them, and I sat as chief, and dwelt as a king among the troops, and as one who comforted the mourners. But now, okay, so there's what he used to be. Here's what he is now. But now those younger than me mock me. Remember a moment ago, he said, young men used to shut up when I came around. Now young people mock me. Now he's going to describe these young people and their parents 
in really demeaning terms. He's going to start out by saying, these young men who mock me now, their fathers, I wouldn't even let lay down with my dogs. That's how low they are. But now those younger than I mock me, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? In other words, I had everything I needed. I had authority. I had power. I had money. What good did I need from them? Their vigor had vanquished from them. From want and from famine, they are gaunt, and they gnaw the dry ground. By the night in the waste and the desolation, they pluck mallow from the bushes, and whose food is the root of a broom shrub. Now, we don't know what any of that means typically these days. Plucking the mallow by the bushes was the reeds that would grow along the water, and they were real salty. They were very difficult to eat. And the broom shrub was really, really sour and bitter and difficult to eat. So what he's saying is these people are so poor that they go out looking for anything to eat, even the worst tasting stuff that there is. They go and pluck out the plants along the marshes and eat that despite its horrible taste. Verse 5 says, they are driven from the community and the community shouts against them as it shouts against a thief so that they dwell in dreadful valleys, in holes of the earth and in the rocks. What Job's getting at is they're nothing and I was something. I was really, really something, and they're really, really nothing, and they mock me. That's how far down I am now. Among the bushes, they cry out. Under the nettles, they are gathered together. In other words, they're in the thorns and in the weeds. That's where they live their lives. Fools, even those without a name, those who have no reputation, They were scourged from the land. And now I have become their taunt. And I have even become a byword to them. They abhor me and they stand aloof from me. And they do not refrain from spitting at my face. Because he, God, has loosed his bowstring and afflicted me. They have cast off the bridle before me. On the right hand, their brood arises. They thrust aside my feet and build up against me their ways of destruction. In other words, they knock me over, they knock me off my feet, and then they come along and just destroy everything in their path. And there's really nothing I can do about it. Look at verse 13. And they break up my path. In other words, the road that I walked, the very path of my life, they break it up. And they profit from my destruction, and no one restrains them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the tempest they roll on. Terrors are turned against me. They pursue my honor as the wind. In other words, like chaff in the wind, it just blows away. These things that used to be my honor have just blown away. And my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night, it pierces my bones within me. 
and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force, my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. And he, God, has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. And I cry out to thee, I cry out to God for help, but you don't answer me. I stand up, and thou dost turn thy attention against me. Thou hast become cruel to me. With the might of thy hand, thou dost persecute me. Thou dost lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride. You blow me away, like I said, like the chaff. I'm just blown away. And thou dost dissolve me in this storm, in this tempest, in the things that you've brought my way. You have just destroyed me. Verse 23, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of the meeting for all living. I like that phrase. I like some of the Old Testament phrases when they speak of death and they say, like Abraham died and he was gathered to his people. That's heartwarming. And here, even Job, though he made so many references to how people die and go down into the grave and down into the pit, nevertheless, he understood that at the point of death, he was going to the house of meeting for all the living. Yet, verse 24, yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand? In other words, isn't this completely understandable? Look at my state. Of course, I'm complaining. This is what his three friends have been putting him down for and saying, what, what are these complaints that God is doing this to you because you've sinned? Just admit that you've sinned and then God will bless you again. And he's saying, of course I'm complaining. Wouldn't somebody in my state complain? Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand or in his disaster, therefore, cry out for help? <coughs> have I not wept? For the one whose life is hard. In other words, my whole life, here he begins, he's justifying, he's self-justifying. Haven't I wept for the ones whose life was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. I am seething within, and I cannot relax. Days of affliction confront me. I go about Mourning without comfort. I stand up in the assembly and I cry out for help. I have become a brother to jackals and a companion of ostriches. That's an odd turn of a phrase, but what it means is now I live so far away from people that the wild birds and the wild four-footed beasts, wolves and jackals, coyotes are now my companions. It used to be that I was chief among men, and now I'm out here among the wild animals. My skin turns black on me, and my bones burn with fever. Therefore, my harp, which is an instrument of happiness and gladness, my harp is turned to mourning, and my flute to the sound of those who weep. It's important that those two chapters be combined with chapter 31 because now chapter 31 is going to be Job's effort 
to actually state his own case as if he were in court and to justify himself. He started self-justifying when he said, haven't I wept for the one whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? And of course, I think he said that because his three friends can see the condition he's in. And rather than weeping for him, rather than grieving for him, they continued to accuse him. And he said, but I wouldn't do that. When did you ever see me do that? But now in chapter 31, he's going to start saying, I'm calling down curses on myself if I'm guilty. If I'm actually guilty, then God's completely right to bring any curse on me. In fact, I'm going to raise the ante and I'm going to tell God what kind of curses I deserve if any of this is true. Chapter 31, starting at verse 1. Self-justifying. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? In other words, I'm not guilty of any sexual sin. I don't look on virgins. In a little while, he's going to say, I don't peek at my neighbor's door. I don't seek after my neighbor's wife. I'm not guilty of any sexual sin here. How then could I stare? Could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number my steps? In other words, the reason that I'm not guilty of any sexual sin that you can think of is because I'm aware that God brings calamity to the unjust. God brings disaster to those who work iniquity. And because I know that, I've made sure that I have remained guiltless, that I have remained righteous before God. Does he not see my ways? Does he not number my steps? If I have walked in falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me in accurate scales and let God know my integrity. In other words, if God would judge me based on what he knows of me, since he's numbering all my steps and he knows all my ways, I'm so sure of my own self-righteousness that if God were to weigh me in a proper scale, then he would know that I have integrity and that I have walked before him uprightly. If my step has turned from the way or my heart followed my eyes, that's a very, very interesting phrase uh, in the New Testament. John tells us that lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, that all sin is wrapped up in those three. Job seems to be aware of that. And he says, my eye has seen things, but I don't chase after those things that my eye has seen. If my step has turned from the way or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. There's the, the punishment. If I have done any of that, then let me sow my fields and not eat from it. Let other people eat it. And let my crops all be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, 
an interesting phrase that may mean that he was there seeking after his neighbor's wife, or it may be him saying, I was a peeping Tom. If I was guilty of chasing after my neighbor's wife in any way while my heart was enticed by a woman, then may my wife, don't forget that Job has a wife, with whom he had plenty of sons and daughters, and he stayed true to her his whole life, and yet he's going to say, if I ever committed any sexual sin or chased after another woman, then let my wife grind for another, which means let her do the most menial tasks. Let her do the grinding of the wheat. Let her do that for somebody else instead of me. And then he goes further than that and says, and let others kneel down over her, which I think only means let someone else be sexual with her. So if I'm guilty of any sexual crime, let my wife, the love of my life, be reduced to virtually nothing. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity, punishable by the judges. For it would be fire that consumes all the way to the place of the dead, to Abaddon, and it would uproot all of my increase. For if I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, What then could I do when God arises and when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb also make him my servant? And the same one who fashioned us made us both in the womb? So he's saying, okay, so I had servants, but I always treated them fairly. I didn't lord it over them. Verse 16, if I have kept the poor from their desire... Or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail? Or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it? In other words, if there was a hungry orphan, I always shared my food with him. I didn't just eat on my own. But from my youth, he grew up with me as with a father. And from infancy, I guided her, the widow. So he's saying, they were born the same way I was born. They were made by God. They're precious in God's sight. They were formed in the womb the same way I was formed in the womb. How could I not be kind and good to them? Should I preach on that for a few moments? Because that's a thought that leads us all the way into the New Testament. And is said often enough about looking on the things of others and esteeming others as better than yourself. And yet that theology is all the way back here in Job where he says, From my youth up, I I raised the orphan. As if I was their father. From infancy, I guided the widows. I took care of the poor. I took care of my servants. And if I haven't done that, then God needs to punish me. Verse 19. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, If I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate. In other words, if the other men all agreed, yes, you ought to raise your hand and slap that orphan. If any of that's true of me, if I've cheated anybody in any way, then let my shoulder fall out of its socket and let my arm be broken off at the elbow. For calamity from God is a terror to me. 
And because of his majesty, I can do nothing. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in its splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth. In other words, there were people who would worship sun, moon, stars. And he's saying, if I looked at the sun or the moon and then blew it a kiss because I worshiped it or I saw its glory above the glory of God, then that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment. For I would have denied God above. Have I rejoiced at the distinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Have the men of my tent not said, who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? In other words, everybody that works for me, all the people in my tent, every day they've had enough food. You can't find one who's not satisfied with the amount of food he got. And the alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. Have I covered my transgression like Adam did by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent, did not go out of doors? Obviously, the answer is no, I haven't done any of that. I haven't tried to cover my sin, which is what he's been accused of by all of his friends. I haven't done what Adam did. I didn't try to cover up. I've lived my life so that all of you can observe my good works and my righteousness. And so he reaches the point at verse 35 of saying, oh, that I had one who would hear me. Behold, here's my insignia. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. In other words, he's saying, my goodness, my righteousness, how I've acted, how I've been, that's, that's the very essence of who I am. That's my signature. That's my insignia. That's the reason that you can write a check. And once you put your signature on that check, that check is now good because that signature represents you. That's how they know it's you because the signature matches. And he's saying, that's my insignia is my righteousness. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written, surely I would carry that on my shoulder. And I would bind it to myself like a crown. And I would declare to God the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Okay, now you see Job really going off rails. Now he's starting to say, I would go defend myself directly to God and these things that people have accused me of, I'd wear it like a crown. I'd bind it to myself and carry it on my shoulders, and I would walk before God like a prince, fully confident of my own righteousness. If my land cries out against me, and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money, or have caused its owners to lose their lives, then let briars grow instead of wheat, and stinkwood instead of barley, and the words of Job are ended. So do you understand what Job's doing now? Mm -hmm. He's self-justifying. He's looking back after everything that his friends have accused him of falsely. 
He's looking back at what he once was, the authority, the power, the wealth, the influence that he once had. Now he sees himself as a byword and a joke, and it doesn't seem fair to him. So now he's saying, somebody accuse me of something. Because if God were here today, I would walk in front of him and say, weigh me out. Well, that's enough to get Elihu upset. That's enough to get the young man, Elihu, who's been listening this whole time, to say, okay, enough. The three of you who have been counseling him are no help at all. Because none of you have actually been able to prove Job guilty. Even though you keep saying you must be guilty of something, you've offered no evidence. So you got nothing. And Job, you're wrong because that's not the way you approach God. But first, Elihu has to defend the fact that he's speaking even though he's a young man. Because as I began tonight by saying, in that culture, the young men did not reprimand older men. But Elihu's going to do it. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So they had nothing else they could say to him. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, his anger burned. Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. But Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Don't ever try that one on me. Okay? The only one who gets away with saying that to me is Conrad. And then if Micah ever comes to me and starts this conversation with, look, Jim, I am, I am young and you are old. Conversation ends right there. We're done. I am young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. That's what I assumed was going to be the case. The abundant in years may not be wise, it turns out, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I think. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings. While you pondered what to say, I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. And if you go back and you look through the conversation again, if you go back and you consider the conversation, that's exactly right. Job brought up many, many good points. As he was defending himself and his own righteousness and the way he walked and the things he did, he kept saying, bring out your witnesses. Show me something that I've actually done. You keep accusing me, but prove it. 
So Elihu is saying, indeed, not a one of you actually refuted Job. You didn't listen to his words. Instead, what you did was you said, oh, you talk too much. Oh, windy words. Oh, but you never actually addressed his argument. Not one of you answered his words. So do not say, we have found wisdom. So God will rout him, not man. In other words, don't be so sure of yourself to think that God is the one who's going to upend Job because he has to be wrong or he must be wrong. And just because you can't do it, don't assume that God's going to do it because you're assuming too much. You're assuming that Job actually is guilty, but you haven't proven it. Verse 14, for he has not arranged his words against me, Job's primary arguments weren't against the three friends. It wasn't against any man. His arguments with God. His discussion is with God. So Elihu says, he has not arranged his words against me, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. They are dismayed. They answer no more. Words have failed them. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stop and answer no more? I too will answer my share. I also will tell you my opinion, for I am full of words. And the spirit within me constrains me. But behold, my belly is like unvented wine. In other words, when you're fermenting wine, it creates gas enough to make a new wineskin expand. And that's why you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. It'll burst the wineskin because wine expands as it ferments. And he says, that's what I feel like in my stomach. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins. It's about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Chapter 33. However now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold now, I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks, my words are from the uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In other words, I think what he's doing at this point is that he's reciting some of Job's argument for him. He's showing Job that he really listened. He really paid attention. One of my complaints in so many arguments in so many quote-unquote debates between people is that they argue right past each other. They don't spend enough time actually comprehending what the other person said. In order to answer the other person or even refute the other person, you have to make sure that you're understanding what they are saying or else your answer is pointless to them because you didn't understand what they were saying. I know I've said through the years, and this is just a historic fact, that in ancient Greek debate, the first person would make their argument, and then the person who opposed the argument had to prove to that first person that they understood their argument 
before they could respond to it. First, they had to recite the argument to the satisfaction of the person who spoke it. And then when the person who spoke it said, yes, okay, now you understand me, then they could refute the argument. These days, people just, even when people are listening to other people or pretending to listen to other people, they're usually thinking in their mind about what they're going to say next, rather than listen to what's being said to them. So here, Elihu is proving that he does understand Job's argument. My words are from the uprightness of my heart. My lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you, and I have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Now I think this is now Elihu beginning to respond. Surely you have spoken in my hearing. And I have heard the sound of your words. I am pure without transgression. I'm innocent and there is no guile in me. Those are Job's arguments. Behold, he, God, invents pretexts against me and he counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in stocks and he watches all my paths. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. This is Elihu's response now. I get your argument. I hear what you said. I'm reciting your argument back to you, but let me tell you, you're not correct. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? Okay, Elihu's really been listening because that is what Job has been arguing. If I could find him, if I could get him to sit down, I would demand of him. He'd answer me. He says, why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, and yet no one notices it. But in a dream, in the vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men, while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction, that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit. That, again, fascinating bit of theology. Who keeps man's soul out of the pit? God does. God is the one who moves on men, even though you may not be aware of it, you may not be conscious of it. He says, even in the deepest part of your sleep, God is giving you your instructions to, to keep you aside from your own conduct and to deliver your soul from hell and to keep you from your own self-pride, it's God that does that. It's not man. So stop self-justifying. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. Man is also chastened by the pain on his bed. And with unceasing complaint in his bones, so that his life loathes bread. And his soul loathes his favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight. And his bones, which were not seen, now stick out. Then his soul draws near to the pit. And his life draws near to those who bring death. 
Okay, that's the natural state of all human beings that Elihu has just described. No matter who you are, at some point you're going to end up on your bed chastened. If you're not killed somewhere, you're going to die anyway. You're going to die natural death in which you're going to reach the point where you even hate your favorite food and your soul will loathe bread and your flesh is going to waste away and your bones are going to be sticking out as you become increasingly thinner and your soul is drawing near to death. Okay, that's the natural state of men. And if all men die in that state, what awaits them? Nothing but judgment. Nothing but eternal condemnation and separation from God. So then what's the answer? It's not Job's self-righteousness. It's not Job's three friends' argument about, well, God always makes sure that the righteous you know, get plenty of blessings and the evil are always going to be paid back in their own lifetime. That's not the answer either. What's the real answer? The real answer is, first off, don't complain against God because God knows what he's doing. And when you reach that point of death, verse 23, if there is an angel as a mediator for him, a messenger from God as a mediator for that man who's dying, if there is an angel as a mediator for him, one out of a thousand, interesting language, not for everybody, but for one out of a thousand, if there is a mediator to remind a man what is right for him, then let him, the mediator, be gracious to him, the dying man, and say to God, deliver him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom. How interesting is that? If a mediator, a messenger from God, translated angel here, if he comes to that dying man and intercedes for him and prays to God saying, don't take him down to the pit, deliver him, I found a ransom. I found a payment for him. I found something that's of such value that it can actually pay for the sinfulness and the decay of that man. That's the answer. Elihu couldn't be more correct. Amen. Well, then let that mediator, that intercessor, be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. And then look, this one that was dying whose bones were sticking out, whose flesh was wasting away, verse 25, let his flesh become fresher than in youth. That's resurrection. That's new body stuff. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. And then he will pray to God, and God will accept him. Why will God accept him at that point? Because he had a mediator. Because he had somebody that paid the ransom for him. As a result, God accepts him, that he may see God's face with joy, and he may restore his righteousness to man, and he may restore his righteousness to man. That's, again, just fascinating theology. At one time, Adam had the righteousness of God, and then he fell. And the whole point of Christianity is the restoration of the righteousness of God in men. And you hear Job saying it all those years ago. 
in what is arguably the oldest book in the Bible. I keep saying the Bible only tells one story because the Bible only has one author. And anywhere you look, you're going to keep finding the same story, even all the way back here in Job. And then when that happens, when his righteousness is restored to him, by the way, notice he's still answering Job. Job is defending himself and saying, I'm a righteous man. And Elihu is saying, that's not where righteousness comes from. You've confused your walking in the ways of God as being self-righteousness. And that's not where real righteousness comes from. Righteousness is only going to come to you because look at you, you are decaying. Look at you, you are dying. Your bones do stick out. Look at the condition you're in. The only place you're going to find righteousness is if you have a Messiah who has a ransom price. That's when God can then give you God's own righteousness, which is the only adequate righteousness. And then that man, verse 27, that man is going to sing to men and say, now this, this is hard to, to jazz up. This is hard to sing. This is, this is a tough one. I have sinned and perverted what is right. The word sing there means he's going to openly declare to men. Rather than arguing for their own self-righteousness, they're going to openly declare, I'm a sinner. Isn't that what we do now? As a result of Christ having the ransom price to pay, we're the first to admit, I'm a sinner. Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, says, I'm the chief of sinners. We're happy to admit our sinfulness because we're happy to admit we have a mediator with a ransom price. He gets all the glory, not me. He will sing to men and say, I have sinned and I have perverted what is right and it is not proper for me. But he, God, has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and my life shall see the light. I can sing that. I'm happy to declare that to anybody. By the way, isn't that the very essence of what the gospel is? Yes. The very essence of the gospel is I'm a sinner. I have a redeemer with a proper ransom. Therefore, I've been delivered from the judgment of God. I'm not going to go down into the pit. And I shall see the light of God with my own eyes. I mean, what a wonderful message. Ellie, who's preaching here? Amen. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall see the light. Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men. Not all, maybe one in a thousand, he said, but but oftentimes among men, this is what God does. God speaks. We just don't see it. We just don't pay attention to it. But God is doing this all the time. What's he doing? Saving men from his own judgment. Saving men from his own wrath. Saving people from the pit that he himself created. And he's saving men. Oftentimes God does this with men. To bring his soul back from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life 
That's what we want. It's the whole point of the gospel. It's the whole point of the New Testament. It's the whole point of Christianity. We want to know the light of life. Because down here on the planet, we're all getting old, getting sick, decaying, and dying. So cheer up. (laughs) It's going to get worse. And yet, we all have that hope. That's why we're here on a Wednesday night listening to the book of Job. Because we all have that hope of eternal life. We all have that hope of standing in the light of God and being accepted by the very God that delivered us from the pit of hell. Being accepted by him is the whole point of what we do and why we do it. He's going to bring back our soul from the pit that we may be enlightened with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. And then, if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, at least listen to me. Keep silent and I will teach you wisdom. In other words, I want your justification as bad as you do. That's why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. Look, we don't tell people about Christ because we hate them. We don't tell people, you're doing wrong, because we're out to get them, because we hate them, because we're just haters. The reason that we continue to proclaim the truth of God to horrible sinners It's because we want their justification. We want their soul delivered from the pit of hell. We want them to stand in the eternal light. It's, in fact, the most loving thing we can do. And every once in a while, they want to argue back and push back. And I want to talk like Elihu here. I want to talk like him and say, just be quiet and listen. You need to know this. You need to understand this. Once you understand it, then if you have an argument, your argument's not with me anymore. Your argument's with God. But if you come away with nothing else tonight, I hope that you see yet again, once again, that the Bible is the very word of God and keeps telling the same story over and over again, which is man cannot justify himself no matter the best of men, which Job arguably is. At the beginning of the book of Job, God himself says, look, he's upright and he eschews evil. God declares that about him. But when it comes to eternal justification and God's own righteousness, you can't do it. God has to do it for you. And the way he accomplishes it is by sending a mediator on your behalf who has a ransom for you. And that's the gospel according to Elihu in the book of Job. Because the Bible keeps saying the same thing over and over again. There. We made it. Now, by the way, I can explain it to you. I can't understand it for you. Any questions? Really? We're all good? Yes, sir. So, so far, the sin of pride is what uh, the protagonist is guilty of. I would say yes, and and that sense of self-justification, that sense of, you know, I I did all these good things. Who can accuse me of not doing any of these good things? Look at the way I've lived. And so, therefore, the way I've lived should be justifying me. 
But when God shows up and starts speaking after Elihu gets done, God's going to say, are you going to accuse me to justify yourself? You're going to make me guilty to make yourself better? I love this old phrase, and I've said it enough times, but we have to take sides with God against ourselves. And then God will justify us, not because of what we did, but because of the mediator who has the sin price in his hand. Once that ransom is paid, that's where real, genuine, eternal justification comes from. And that's standard New Testament theology found in the oldest book in the Bible. Pretty remarkable, huh? Yes. Yeah, if you don't think the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, chew on that one for a while. Smoke that in your pipe and... No. <laughs> I don't know which way that was going. You had your hand up. Yes, sir. Well, it's too far about Ellie. Where did he... How did he get all this? Because he clearly seems to understand the doctrine of total depravity. He knows everyone's going into the pit unless there's a, a mediator. Where did he get all of this? And secondly, is Elihu part of the group of friends uh, at the end that God rebukes and uh, caught? He's not no. included. Yeah, no, it's the three friends. Okay. Yeah. But where does he come from and where does he know this? Tell me. I don't know. He just showed up. We've been reading the book. Have you seen anything about him up till now? No, he just shows up. I actually did get an email maybe two years ago from somebody who wrote E-L-I-W-H-O question mark, Ellie who? <laughs> and, and they were saying, where's this guy come from? What's this about? Well, we don't know outside of it's in God's word. The Jews have always protected that book and treated it as canonical. Tonight when I got here, Conrad was asking me, you know, where does this book come from? What's its background? Who wrote it? Where? And I said, we don't really know. We assume that Job is the one who wrote it first person because he does get restored at the end. So he ends up telling his story is, is the way it's usually assumed. But as far as when was it written, by whom, in what area, all we know is that the Jews always kept it among their most holy books, and that's why it's considered canonical to this very day. But I would also argue that the theology of the book is so strictly canonical that it belongs in our Bible, yes. because it's telling the same story. So, yes, sir? Two things. Yeah. First of all, Micah should have started saying... I'm young and you are old. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All through this book, yeah. listening not just to Job's three friends, but particularly to Job, I keep thinking, centuries later, Jeremiah is going to make a comment that absolutely destroys all Job's arguments when he says, all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. Yeah. Job's making claims about his righteousness, and I'm sure... His acts were righteous. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything he said about his actions that was incorrect. Yeah. Except that he was claiming it was his own righteousness and not God's. And that's exactly a right. big mistake. Yeah. And, and I think Job's argument, like I said, God himself said he's an upright man who eschews evil. Yeah. So everything Job argued was the truth. It's just that he was willing to stand on his own actions his own righteousness, and try to justify himself before God on that basis.
And that's the mistake. No matter how good you are in earthly terms, you still don't measure up to the righteousness of God. And that's the standard. And by the way, is it not Isaiah that said our righteousness is a filthy rags? Okay. No, I was willing to believe I'd been wrong. So, okay. Okay. Would you do me one more favor? That last thing that you said, I think you're right. Would you say that one more time so I can? I think you are right. Most of the time, I do. That won't make it to the internet, but my wife is going to hear it over and over and over again. (laughs) Coffee (laughs) cup. Anything else? Did you have your hand up? We do believe that Job was a believer, right? Well, when you say believer, yes, he was someone who was chosen of God. Yes. Yes. And he can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Yeah. And I know that in my flesh I will see God. So he makes enough declarations that we would have to say yes. It's just that what we think of when we say believer today is well, different than what yeah, a believer you know, would have been then. You know it. But, yeah. He's one of God's elect. No doubt. Job ends up repenting in dust and ashes before God at the end. Why? Because God shows up. Why? Because Job's one that he's chosen. He doesn't leave Job in that state. He ends up restoring Job. And so Job declares the goodness and righteousness of God. So based on all that, I'd have to say, yeah, he's, he's one of God's own because God revealed himself to him. But it shows, I think, when you look at the whole scope of the book, it shows that our own best attempts, you know, after our own flesh and everything else, we can't, can't justify ourselves, we can't comprehend God, we can't quite get there. It's going to take God's revelation of himself for us to know anything really important. Anything else? All right, then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.